Good evening. We weren't sure how many people will have time to come. The weather is terrible and of course we are in direct competition with a lecture next door organised by the Islamic Centre. So we booked two rooms and we're very happy uh, that it turned out to actually be a very big and numerous and wonderful audience. Uh, welcome to our annual Cantum Lecture. My name is Maris Turda and I'm the director of the Cantum Institute. Our guest tonight is Professor Aziz Alasbeh, who is currently at the Central University in Budapest. Uh, Professor Alasmeh is a well-known scholar of Arab culture and Arab intellectual history, uh, and also, if I may add, an uh, uh, engaged intellectual, or he used to be. Uh, we don't know how it is nowadays. He's published extensively on the topics related to his immediate field of research, but I'll mention three books which I think are worth mentioning in this context. One is Islam's and Modernities, a highly acclaimed book. Now I think it's worth to what the fourth edition. The other one is um, Muslim Kinship. Uh, and one I particularly like is called Times of History. But tonight he's going to talk of, about a topic of recent interest. And um, let me tell you, Professor Alasmeg, we're very grateful that you accept our invitation. Uh, so without further ado, as is the point. Thank you very much indeed, Marius. Uh, thank you very much. I am tremendously honored by the presence of many distinguished friends and colleagues, and particularly all those who have preferred to come here rather than go to the competition upstairs, <laughs> where, where, where uh, topics which are not entirely unrelated to mine are being uh, spoken about in a manner which is entirely different to what I'm going to offer. Ladies and gentlemen, on the 30th of July, 1856, Charles Darwin wrote to Sir Joseph Hooker, director of the Royal Botanical Gardens in Kew, wondering at, and I quote, what a book a devil's chaplain might write on the clumsy, wasteful, blundering, low, and horribly cruel works of nature. Darwin was not predisposed by temperament to advocate the devil's work, but he was nevertheless sufficiently sober-minded to engage privately with questions of theodicy and design that were all the rage among English scientists and theologians of his time. He was rather impelled to detect in claims for benign and intelligent design or in the milder claims that this be the best of all possible worlds, an absurdity and a travesty. In times more determinedly exercised by theological and dogmatic considerations, doubts expressed about theodicy were redacted otherwise than by sober musings over results of research into natural history. A different redaction was required for doubts about the wisdom of a divinity, creating a nature by nature messy and violent, and creating humanity by nature given to greed, aggression, and injustice. Doubts over claims for theodicy in the natural and human worlds, equally characterized by clumsy, wasteful, blundering, low, and horribly cruel works, in these times past, the potential toxicity of creation's works and the incongruity of any consequent notion of benign and firm stewardship tended to be attributed to a pernicious personified agency acting against the wholesome order of the divinity. The ways of nature were not so much hers as God's. Human disorder was generally attributed to the wiles of Satan, when not to divine retribution whose works in nature were legion. A thousand years before Darwin, this bundle of themes was addressed in Abbasid domains in a variety of manners, which I shall address presently. In philosophical and theological works, in casual and sometimes exuberant blasphemy, by libertine literati, 
and in a variety of genres in which Abbasid freethinking was expressed. Before I come to this, I should take up the bird's eye view adopted by the heresiologist and scholar of world religions, al who died in 1153 and flourished in Baghdad and in Iran. Wishing to account for miscreants or the disorder of right thinking, and by extension, disorder in general, Al-Shahrastani, in the usual manner of a heresiologist, referred this back to an archetypical event, an etiological legend standing alongside a myth of creation of God's good order. In so doing, he has Satan cast aspersions on the consistency and wisdom of God's own works. Satan appears as the arch-free thinker, an idea that occurs in a large number of other Arabic works. The great tempter is at the origin of what al-Shahrastani called al-Istibdad bil-Rai, willful use of personal opinion beyond the limits prescribed by God. Iblis, Satan, Arabic for Satan, al-Shahrastani held, and I'm using Sarastrumsa's translation with slight modification here, and I quote, relied solely on his own opinion and did not accept the authority of God's explicit command. He opted for vain notions in opposition to the divine order because of his vanity. End of quote. Further, Satan was, and I quote again, the first accursed one, for he imposed the government of reason on that which cannot be governed by reason. Satan was complaining about God's inconstancy and inconsistency. The setting was the Garden of Eden, where, according to the Quran, God created Adam and commanded the angels to prostrate themselves before him. Despite their warning God about the creation of Adam and setting him up as God's vicar forever, they did as commanded, all that is, except Satan, who found himself banished after having protested that such a, that such a command subverted the hierarchy that God had willed himself. Al-Shahrastani put a series of questions into Iblis' mouth. And I quote, Since God knew in advance what was to become of me, what is the wisdom behind his creating me? Since he created me according to his wish and will, why did he command me to obey him? What is the wisdom behind his command since he neither benefits nor suffers from obedience and disobedience? Since he created me as I am, why did he drive me out of the Garden of Eden? Why did he allow me to tempt Adam and Eve? Why does he allow me to pester and mislead humanity? Finally, Satan wondered, I quote, would it not have been better for him to create a world free of evil? All these motifs representing Satan as a tragic figure rather than the figure of sheer evil, as an actor in a tragedy of fate, caught up in an impossible and unjust situation of God's making, was not uncommon, was not an uncommon motif related to Abbasid discussions <coughs> of theodicy in particular and of established religion in general. This was a universe of discourse in which the question of divine justice was a common topic in theological discussions. Satan was originally an archangel who refused to prostrate himself before Adam as God commanded him to do. Before Adam, who was made of a substance, which was clay, baser than Satan's substance, which was fire. This point was put into verse unforgettably by the blind, lecherous, and irrepressibly free-thinking 
poet Bashar bin Burd, who died in 784. The great antinomian mystic Al-Hallaj, died in 22, stated the matter thus. God, he said, threw him into the sea, his hands bound, and warned him not to get wet. <coughs> Adam, more playfully put, by the libertine poet Abu Nuwas, who died in 814, Adam was a confusing experience for Satan, who received mixed signals from his creator, and therefore determined to act as a procurer to Adam's descendants. Much given to jocular Satanism, Abu Nawas inverted the Faustian scheme, the poet imposing himself compellingly and sarcastically upon Satan, whom habitually and familiarly referred to as his uncle, and to whom he pandered, the two toying with each other in a tango of exquisite complicity. It might be remembered that Satan's vexation reclaimed a number of themes and motifs addressed by Abbasid freethinkers. These were here with Al-Shahrastani reclaimed systematically and given an etiology. But the reality of Abbasid freethinking was not always so systematic, and it generally appealed to human reason rather than to a preternatural agency. Satan, as a tragic figure, was a common motif to be added to others, which made up the motifemic constellation of Abbasid freethinking and its later European legacy, to which I should turn in due course. And it is likely that it was in the folds of Arabic anthologies and Florilegia, translated into Latin and Romance languages during the Italian Duecento, and filtered through Toledo and Palermo, that the motifs of Arabic freethinking were later to be made part of European freethinking, atheism, and erudite libertinism of the 17th and 18th centuries. Expressed first in a variety of clandestine texts of uncertain form and provenance, circulated in manuscript, later in the rather desultory the tribus impostoribus, and finally in the firmly composed Traité des Trois Imposteurs in the edition of the Baron Dolbach, 1768. I shall come to this theme briefly later. For now, I should like to offer a general characterization and description of the phenomenon of Abbasid freethinking in the period of roughly between the middle of the 8th and the 11th centuries, in evidence most markedly in the cosmopolitan, courtly, and allied milieus of Baghdad, but in evidence elsewhere as well. Thereafter, and on present evidence, it persisted only in demotic form, in casual irreverence and blasphemy. In, the, in sayings attributed to bawds, buffoons, and lunatics, in dialectal poetry, and in shadow plays, but also in the works of certain mystics. I should be clear about the phenomenon I am endeavoring to characterize. I should be speaking of free thinking, not of heresy. The latter is divines within. The former is the repudiation of established religion in total and in the process. The repudiation of claims for benign extraterrestrial in the sense, I should be speaking of humanism. For upon closer scrutiny, beyond emblematic and formulaic purposes, it might be proposed that humanism be seen as consisting of a number of possible categorical specifications. Normative humanism expressed in philanthropy and the formation of character, roughly in terms of Cicero's counterposition of humanity and bestiality anthropological and ethnological humanism, and finally, 
situational and historical, Abbasid free thinking would fall into the last category, being a humanism that engages the derogation of human reason by the divine, the revaluation of human reason as against its derogation by commands and affabulations attributed to the divinity. I should go on to say that Abbasid free thinking, more common among Muslims than among Abbasid Christians and Jews, might be characterized as having had two main registers. One is relatively unstructured, playful, often frivolous, jocular in piety and blasphemy, often associated with libertine individuals and milieus of the courtly and literary elites. Some radical fringes of the French Enlightenment with the Roman du Couvent come immediately to mind. Abu Nuwas, for instance, related in a highly elevated poetical register a, ris a risque repartee between himself and a handsome youth he fancied, conducting the flirtation throughout by using Quranic quotations in a sustained play of lewd, lewd double entendre. This register, despite its playfulness, offered a generally fatalistic and wistfully pessimistic turn, sustained by an urbane skepticism of cultivated and sophisticated temperaments tending towards humanism. Set against the ulama, the representatives of the morbid, of morbid and officious religiosity, with vituperative derision and pitiless satire. This was a register that was to persist throughout, and indeed until today reflected in attitudes, jokes, and proverbs. One may signal a large number of examples from poetry, anecdotes related in literary anthologies and books of erotica, and of course, from what is known as popular culture, the Arabian Nights, for instance. Less well known are media such as the shadow theater. We have, for instance, the text of shadow plays by Ibn Daniel, who died in the early 14th century, one of which, Taif al-Khayal, takes the form of a celebratory elegy for Satan, notwithstanding the fact that it ends with the repentance of the protagonist once the point had been made. This brings me to the other register of free thinking, one that is high-minded, serious, systematic, and theologically and philosophically engaged. What this second, more deliberative register does have in common with the more cavalier one I have spoken of are a number of shared motifs, especially the criticism of claims for theocracy and the appeal to the human understanding in a manner reminiscent of Shahrastani's Satan. On the 6th of June, 1807, the German traveler Ulrich Jasper Seetzen recorded in his diary a conversation in a Cairo coffeehouse, during which anecdotes were related about a buffoon who quarreled with God about the wisdom of his creation. The hero of the story was a certain Al-Rewendi. What the German traveler was not aware of was that 900 years earlier, a substantial theologian by the name of Ibn Al-Rewendi, who died after 911, had produced a theological and social criticism of religion in terms of invective criticism of theodicy. God cannot be wise as he created the world as it is. 
permeated by inequalities and injustices, and created in addition snakes, scorpions, and other nasty creatures harmful to humanity, all of which cannot be seen as part of a grand design with benign intent. Ibn Rawandi moved during the course of his life from inner Muslim theological disputes onto the criticism of theology, and finally, to the almost nihilistic skepticism recorded in his Kitab al-Zumurrut, Book of the Emerald. The title itself, Sarastrum so disagree with me here, announcing a lacerating, corrosive intent. Emeralds were then thought to have a blinding effect on snakes. The use of the snake metaphor for religion already announces his view that religion was a particularly harmful institution for human societies, a source of enmity and bloodshed, and a bane on the rationality inherent in cultivated humans. I will mention only two other personalities, both of whom shared this view of religion as harmful at once to human collectivities and to the human intellect, and held that the works both of nature and of human society do not indicate graceful design. The first is the positivistic and polymathic natural scientist and physician Abu Bakr al-Razi, died 925, perhaps a little bit later. And the second, the poet and well-rounded literateur Abu Ala al-Ma'arri, who died in 1058, often described as the poet among philosophers and the philosopher among poets. Al-Razi applied to religion a naturalistic and inductive epistemology and the belief in the progress of science in the same way as he applied this to medicine, mineralogy, alchemy, and magnetism. His theory, his ethical theory, was epicurean. For his part, Al-Ma'arri, to whom John Milton bears comparison in many respects, had a most profound and bitter pessimism and bleakness of vision, doubly enfolded into his own blindness and a severe asceticism which included abstinence from sex and a vegan diet. Both were made almost unbearable by the very highly mannered excess of his archaizing lexicon, and he wavered continually between the desire for a morality which might gain sustenance from religion and an irrepressible alertness to the absurdities of religious belief and practice, as he saw them, of obscurantist and self-interested clerics. He alternated continually between accents of faith and commendations of simple piety, of ritual observance on the one hand, and almost blasphemous statements, derision for ritual observance and parodies of religious feasts, including pilgrimage to Mecca on the other. The spaces in between allowed him to develop an incipient deism, shorn of theology and of organized religion and its desiderata, alongside a moralizing sentiment and a diffuse humanism continually frustrated by his almost vertiginous pessimism. The three I mentioned, by way of somewhat emblematic example, were very different persons and moved in different social milieus. But their publics did cross, and they all contributed to a shared universe of debate, controversy, and polemic. Polemics between Muslim theological and denominational trends, also between Karaites and Rabbinites, and between Christian denominations, vying for patronage and centrality 
as well as for political influence. Polemics between Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Manichaeanism, and Zoroastrianism. Elaborations of the heritage of, antique, of antiquity and late antiquity, including Oriental wisdom. Mention needs to be made here of heresiological and controversial literature, and of literature on all religions, and indeed on religion as such. Later, the Jewish author Ibn Kamuna, died in 1284, Ibn Kamuna of Baghdad, was to compose a treatise detailing systematically the points held by the three monotheistic religions against each other. It should be added that, unlike Byzantium or the Latin West, the cosmopolitan realm of the Abbasids was multi-confessional, and the facility that obtained for comparing religions regarded as equally valid but not quite equal, without necessarily speaking of heresy or using charges of paganism, that came somewhat naturally, a point already discerned by Ernest Renaud in 1852. For good measure, one might recall that in the time period under consideration, there had not yet emerged a discernible, regnant Muslim orthodoxy, however we define orthodoxy. Despite short periods of official primacy for this group or that, according to caliphal and sultanic tastes and reasons of state. What primacy there was had been spasmodic, uncertain, and contested. And there is no reason in historical fact for the common assumption that Muslim orthodoxy was a steady state, even a congenital predisposition. One might think in this regard of the views of Dimitri Kantemir, as expressed in his Sistema Religionis Muhammad Ali of 1722. One needs to look at it as a developing process. Neither was there a properly crystallized and institutionalized, self-sustaining and self-reproducing clerical class. Both developments were to come gradually in the course of the later 11th and the 12th centuries rendering an emergent orthodoxy central and compelling enough to eradicate the others effectively. Yet Abbasid free thinking has generally been regarded as a marginal phenomenon in modern scholarship. It will, I hope, be appreciated that this is an anachronistic position without firm empirical foundation, dependent upon an image of Abbasid society as being <coughs> theologocentric or theologicocentric. Wearisome and platitudinous as this image may be, it is nevertheless well-worn, familiar, predictable, formulaic, and effortless, effortlessly repeatable. In other words, it has all the attributes that make for a popular art. In light of this absence of a regular orthodoxy adopted by the state as its own, one needs to mention competition between socio-cultural milieus, between pietists and emergent traditionalists on the one hand, and those who cultivated Adap, Bellet, and courtly politics <coughs> on the other. The latter were much given to the cultivation both of Arabic letters and of antiquarians. They were given equally to the cultivation of exotic knowledge and exotic tastes as a mark of social distinction, including the cultivation of ethnology and of Orientalism, the latter sometimes emblematized in the figure of the Brahmin, whose primal sagacity and perennial wisdom were used as a foil against established religion. A fascination, incidentally, that was to exercise <coughs> German romantics 
and the 19th century. This is also much like Europeans of the Age of Reason and of the Enlightenment, deists and others, who were to use Islam as a foil against the mysteries of Christianity and against the established churches, and indeed, as late Roman philosophers used Cambrian wisdom in many instances. In the setting, the three personalities mentioned held a number of points in common with each other, as well as with a good number of other personalities, including theologians and philosophers. All three accepted religion on its own terms. This was unlike the earlier and somewhat more radical stance of Ibn Muqaffa in 756, a pro-stylist of enormous talent and intelligence and of great influence on Arabic letters, who had dismissed religion wholesale and regarded it from the outside as rank unreason belonging wholly to the reason of state. Religion was, to the state secretary, a political artifact in the hands of a sovereign manipulating the rough and credulous demos. To him, the workings of religious sentiment could be explained in terms of almost Nietzschean accents, as driven primarily by Incidentally, given that we are dealing with societies that were severely stratified and hierarchical, it will come as no surprise that the idea was shared that the common mass of humans were an ingenuous lot, an excitable and ignorant herd of simpletons that Ibn Rawandi said were only technically human, they being in fact closer in, na in nature to apes. Whatever was said about the salience of reason <coughs> applies to the cultivated elite only. The humanism I am speaking of was directed not to humanity as such, but to human potential. The points shared by our authors are many, and I shall now highlight the most salient in the form of a number of theses, four in fact. Let it also be repeated that <coughs> theirs was a cosmopolite critique of all religion and not of Islam only. Thesis one, religion, at least organized religion, is not necessary, as a consequence of which prophecy is neither necessary nor credible. This is because humans are endowed by the creator with natural reason, which is the ultimate key at once to the secrets of nature and to the management of human social, social life. The facts of nature with its violence and the facts of human history, clumsy, wasteful, blundering, low, and horribly cruel, both militate against presumptions of theodicy which, uh, with a benign purpose and rational design. That which the prophets presume to bring to us is ultimately conjugated with irrationality, the irrationality of religious dogmas and practices, and the covetous and manipulative purpose of clerics. Yet underlying all this chaos and disturbance is a diffuse divinity of deistic description. Al-Ma'ari, for instance, presumed to correct God's own criteria of salvation and damnation, or perhaps sought to correct what established religion took to be God's criteria. When his friend Ibn al-Qarih told him he was about to die and that he feared that he would go to hell, he composed the marvelous Risalat al-Ghufran, the Epistle of Forgiveness. An English translation is, will soon be out, the full English translation. This epistle took Ibn al-Qarih on a tour of heaven and hell, where, among other things, he was made 
to meet a large number of poets and engage them in discussions of poetry and philology. Being more daring and less certain in his belief than Dante, Almari populated paradise with unbelievers. Only Bashar bin Burt was to be found in hell. Thesis two. Prophets, including Muhammad, are conjurers. Almari accepted. What appear as miracles result from legerdemain, using the laws of nature to their own purpose, just like wizards. To Arrazi are ascribed works entitled Makhariq al-Anbiya or Hailmut al-Nabiyyin, the prestidigitation of prophets. I've already mentioned the Impostoris Religionum, the Tribus of Impostoribus, Traité de Trois Imposteurs, with ideas strikingly similar to Arrazi and Ibn Rawandi. Thus, the Quran, which according to Muslim dogma is Muhammad's evidentiary miracle, is far from being miraculous, miraculous and inimitable. It is more than matched in style by much Arabic poetry, so Ibn Rawandi, <coughs> and in content by the writings of Ptolemy, thus Arrazi, and is more akin to the declamation of soothsayers, thus also Arrazi. We still have fragments of the Mu'aradat, texts composed with the purpose of matching Quranic diction, rhythm, and vocabulary. Thesis three. Religions are self-contradictory and contradict one another. Such multiplicity betokens confusion, not divine providence. Thus, Razi maintained that among Muslims, some say the Quran was created in time. Some argue that it was co-eternal with God. Some deny free will, others affirm it. Some affirm anthropomorphism, others deny it. Jesus claimed he was the son of God. Moses claimed God had no son. And Muhammad claimed that Jesus was a man created like the rest of us. Mani and Zoroaster contradicted the three monotheistic prophets regarding God, the creation of the world, and the reason for the existence of good and evil. The Jews claimed that God liked the smell of burnt flesh. Same point made by uh, Hewi and Belchi in the ninth century, perhaps a Jew, and portrayed him as an old man walking about in the Garden of Eden, and claimed that he demanded a finely woven silken rug. These are the desires of someone who is needy, rather than of a self-sufficient and transcendent deity. For his part, Ibn Rawendi, a highly accomplished dialectical theologian of Reformation, is reported to have written treatises intended to demonstrate both free will and predestination and predestination. In response to the situation, and as a polemic motif, our three authors had recourse, implicit or explicit, to the notion of the careful al-adillah, the equipollence of proofs, what the ancient and late antique skeptical traditions termed isosthenia, the idea that pro and contra arguments can be made on any point with equal plausibility. The perfectly reasonable conclusion was that no religion could claim, less so demonstrate, superiority over another. One final observation. Al-Razi, though a rationalist, was no skeptic. Unlike many others, he sought to think beyond the aporias of theological reason and did not take cognitive dissonance between equally plausible yet mutually contradictory positions to be a charter for radical skepticism or its milder form 
of ambivalence or disorientation. The last thesis, number four. Religions are full of absurdities, insulting to sound reason. Beginning with Ibn al-Muqaffa, all free thinkers paid a special attention to religious rights, which they considered absurd. To what purpose, it is continually asked, do Muslims on pilgrimage at Mecca circumambulate a dumb black stone and scurry between al-Marwa and al-Safa? This point had been a staple of anti-Muslim polemics by Jews, minorities accepted, and Christians charging Muslims with paganism. Further, can the Muslim paradise, so Ibn Rawandi in a satirical term, be pleasing to anyone but a rustic? Why did the heavenly host of avenging angels help Muhammad's army at the Battle of Badr, while at the Battle of Uhud they stood by as envoys? Do the doctrine of the Trinity, the status of Jesus as increate, and the Chalcedonian notion of a double nature and one hypostasis square up with a rigorous conception of monotheism? More radically, is the very concept of monotheism not structurally dependent upon an implicit dualism involving the play of God and Satan, so Ibn Muqaffa, and apart from what is said by clerics who, on account of their cultivation of long beards, are satirized by Razi as goats, why does Quranic myth pretend to be history? Is Quranic myth any less absurd than Zoroastrian myth? In all, we find here a view of myth that rejects it entirely, at once simpler and more decided than Greek and Roman elite views of myth as amenable to rationalizing allegorical ephemeristic interpretations, which of course, was all, which of course were also cultivated in the Abbasid period. Now, such were the main points made by Abbasid freethinkers. And such were ideas that received elaboration, but were also in common currency, in more casual settings. One does not discern atheism in these propositions, but a notion of divinity as a deus otiosus, belonging more to natural philosophy than to religion. In a way, this is akin to Varro's gods of the philosophy as distinct from gods of the poets and of the magistrates, much derided by our thinkers. Addressing the title of this lecture with its reference to a universal history of humanism, one must say that there is much continuity, continuity with Ephemerus, Lucretius, Cicero, and other late antique, antique and late antique thinkers and skeptics. One finds in the critique of Christianity specifically many of the motifs that come up in Porphyry, Celsus, or the Emperor Julian. The critique of Judaism is in many ways inspired by Christian polemics, as is to a considerable extent the critique of Islam. We can trace certain textual filiations to these motifemic and argumentative concordances. But this is, to my mind, an unsafe option which risks infinite regress and plentiful over-interpretation. Better than this Lectio Facilior would be a less tractable, but nevertheless more plausible and historically more very similar procedure. This would postulate and search for the circulation of critical motifs from a variety of provenances in a variety of textual locations, certainly not confined to treatises, 
consistent arguments, and other forms of form and expression, and to look into the reclamation of such motifs in appropriate contexts, again, not confined necessarily to genres bearing their formal and systematic expression. Motifs travel well. Think only of Plutarch's satirical reference to beards in relation to a certain type of late antique philosopher and Arraz's use of a comparable image. This use of discrete motifs, as suggested, is less re readily tractable, as it would require a far larger body of texts and the consideration of a broader swathe of genres, milieus, and media, as well as mechanisms and pathways of circulation, apart from the scholar's desk. <coughs> this seems to be a most serviceable procedure, of course now facilitated by the possibilities of digital technology, when we turn to look at the fourth label of the four major theses I sketched above, the theses connect and theses connected them that we find resurfacing at the age of reason and in the radical enlightenment. Looking both backwards and forwards to Abbasid free thinking, we might thereby be able to consider the circulation of motifs, arguments, and concepts, and not only the circulation of specific books as the context of the persistence and transmission across time, space, and languages. There will be some resistance to the notion of continuities between Abbasid free thinking and modern European ideas, much less so for an argument of continuity with antique and late antique traditions. My view is that this has little justification apart from academic institutional habits and boundaries and their anxieties of influence allied to ideological criteria of admissibility. The transmission of Arabic philosophy and natural science is well known. Medieval Arabic criticisms of religion, including criticisms of the Old and New Testament, have recently been seen as having some determinate pathways to Spinoza's Tractatus. Institutional reticence notwithstanding, the correlative question of Arabic literary forms and moods has been succinctly explored in erudite manner quite recently. What remains for me to do before I close is to say a few words about the criticism of religion overall in relation to deism, atheism, reason, and the radical enlightenment, theses and motifs that resurfaced in European history under the signature of the tribus impostoribus of the three impostors, whose existence as a book prior to its publication has been regarded by many as a fiction. A work of this description had been attributed to the baptized Sultan of Palermo, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, and to his aide Pierre de Vigne by Pope Gregory IX in 1293. In ensuing centuries, the title was bandied about by a variety of persons and ecclesiastical authorities and attributed to a number of authors, including Machiavelli, Giordano Bruno, Guillaume Postel, Jean Baudin, Pierre Bayle, Hobbes, and of course, Spinoza. Texts finally emerged and were put in circulation, as I indicated earlier, the edition of Dolbach having the distinction of having been placed on the index on three separate occasions. The nature of the texts in circulation in the centuries prior to publication and attestable circulation 
still escape us. And we shall for the moment have to be content with the assumption that motifs were in circulation in a variety of contexts which are otherwise ascertainable. What is interesting is that we find the four theses that I outlined systematically connected. First, in Holland, under the title of La vie et l'esprit de Monsieur Benoit de Spinoza, 1719. Later, in the edition of the Traité des Trois Imposteurs of Dolbach, and in English and German versions. This, as might be expected, was a materialist treatise. None of the Abbasid personalities mentioned was a materialist as such, but at least two held the world to be eternal, which was tantamount to materialism, according to their adversaries. This treatise also recapitulated in systematic compass the world of ideas and polemical motifs outlined a short while ago. Thus, God appears as a vengeful being, creating evil in order for humans to succumb to it, and fully complicit with the evils that Darwin would regard as being grist to the mill of a devil's champion. We find the Bible to be a bundle of self-contradictory fables, and religions to be based upon imposture, falsehood, and violence, designed to empower the clergy who manipulate sentiments of elemental fear on the part of the mob. We find, finally, prophets to be impostors. Moses was something of a magician, much under the influence of Egyptian magic. <coughs> Jesus preached a false message of hope, contrary to nature, and preached it to simpletons. He was a human made to pass for a god by St. Paul. This, incidentally, is a persistent motif in Muslim writings on Christianity, creating a religion, a religion whose claims to truth are vitiated by its very many divisions. Muhammad was fair game to the author as he was to most Europeans of the time, including Kantemir, in spite of philo-Islamic positions expressed by certain Unitarian Protestants, deists, and freethinkers. All of this, and emphasis on human reason, is familiar from the Abbasid ideas and motifs that I outlined that these circulated persistently in a variety of ways is evident. Renan has already made this connection with regard to Latin Averroism. In 1920, Louis Massignon postulated some form of transmission of similar ideas propounded by Muslim Carmatians in the 10th century. This is somewhat implausible as it is, and it succumbs to the all too common tick of conflating concordance, concordance of ideas with influences and origins. There is no need to assume that, apart from his medical works, Arrazi was read in Europe in the Age of Reason, or that Ibn Kamuna was known at all, though Spinoza may have had access to him in some form or another. But in the perspective of the approach I am suggesting, this hardly matters. What I wish to conclude by suggesting is that the capillary bath pathways of transmission to which I referred be properly investigated in a manner more creative than that involving the normal philological search for intertextual evidence. These are the capillary pathways of motifemic, argumentative, and conceptual concordances, echoed in a variety of settings, my assumption being that an echo is as good as a quotation for this purpose, and that quotations might indeed be regarded as more of the nature of echoes 
than of, cal uh, than of the nature of calx or simple transpositions. In doing so, we might be able to reconstruct a forgotten chapter in an universal history of free thinking, humanism, to which the Abbasid contribution was crucial. Crucial in that it was a moment <coughs> during which all the threads were brought in together as they were to be brought in together in the 17th, 19th centuries. We would thereby have a history shaped somewhat like two interconnected hourglasses. The diffuse, skeptical, and ephemeristic heritage of antiquity and late antiquity gaining a textured consistency as texts and as milieus of identifiable, self-perpetuating uh, textures during the, uh, in the cosmopolitan era of the Abbasids. This critical mass leading to a diffuse circulation over a number of centuries before again its motifemic and other elements were recombined into another consistent critical mass with an identifiable texture during the radical enlightenment. Finally, please rest assured that my purpose is entirely cognitive. I am not in the business of bridging cultural divides, nor of the post-colonialist or post-modernist advocacy of restitutive justice or of historical revanchism. My impulse, perhaps not my, my sole impulse, but my impulse nevertheless, is the curiosity of a natural historian and of a reader of historical thrillers and crime fiction alert to interesting signals and cues. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. It was interesting, it was refreshing.